Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Okay, we begin today with a quote from a guy named Alistair McIntyre. He was a, a theologian and a philosopher, mostly at work in the, in the 90s. He, he said this, and this was kind of a, a principle in one of his key books. He says this, I can only the answer the question what I am to do uh, if I can answer the prior question of what story am I a part. I can only answer the question of what I am to do if I can answer the prior question of what story I am a part. So what he means in that quote is something that you already know to be true, but being a good philosopher, he's kind of giving words to something that we experience on the regular basis, right? What he means is that there are many stories. There are many stories that shape our lives and shape the way we live. And the way in which we understand those stories shapes how we respond and engage in the world, right? And so we could think of a lot of examples, like what is the story behind education, Well, the story behind education is that it's good for young people, for middle-aged people, for older people to have an education, both a formal and an informal education that's good for our brains, that's good for our bodies. It will likely lead to us having more success in the world, perhaps a better job, more competency in our career, greater happiness, greater income, a better life. And therefore... You ought to get a good education. That's the story we tell about education. And so we encourage our children, our young people, we even encourage ourselves to to pay attention in school, to learn all that you can, because that'll be better for your life in the long run. What's the story that comes with playing sports? Well, the story that comes with playing sports is it's better to win than it is to lose, right? And so when we play sports, we take steps to follow in that pattern, right? We train hard, we practice, we strategize, we study the opponent. We try to do everything we can to live into the story of winning, right? That's the goal when we play sports and we play games. And so we take steps in that direction. There are other examples you could think of, not just personal ones, not just education, sports. You could think about your, your job, right? What's the goal with the job? Well, the goal with the job is to get a job that you like and you enjoy, that makes you enough money, that you're comfortable, maybe a job where you can move up over time, you can retire in a reasonable way. And if that's the story that we tell ourselves about our work, then we'll take steps in the direction that lead to those outcomes. You can even think about this in much larger sense. Think about our, our politics, our, our government at the local level or at the state level or at the national level, right? The story that we tell ourselves about our community, about our state, about our nation, the story that we understand to be at work around us informs the way that we act in the world, right? And so if you take that to be true, if you agree with McIntyre's premise, and I hope you do, what he writes about in his work and what he's encouraging particularly Christians to think about is of all the stories that are at work around us, education and career and sports and hobbies, all the stories that are shaping our lives, politics, government, voting patterns, all the stories that are shaping how we live, what is the most important story? What story has the final say? What story governs all the other stories? And if you could answer that question, then that might shape how you live in a particular way. 
Today we're going to begin studying the book of Colossians. And what I want to do in this sermon series here starting today, July 10th, and we'll run through August 7th, is I really want to do a little bit of Bible study with you. Uh, as Chase said, we're kind of finishing up the last month of summer. I think the last dead week just finished this week, and so we are starting to look toward August and even think about the back-to-school season. But we're still traveling a little bit. I know you'll be busy over the next few weeks. My family is going on vacation as well. And so we're going to use this last few weeks of summer uh, to study Colossians together, right? Study Colossians together. And so I hope by the time we get to that first Sunday in August and by the time we return to school uh, that you feel like you really know a lot about Colossians. You know why it was written, when it was written, what its contents are, and why it's important. Uh, I like sort of preaching in this way, and so I'm going to use slides a little more today and try to set up what the book of Colossians is about. You might find it helpful to write some of these things down, particularly if this is new to you. Uh, but I hope today begins a little journey over the next few weeks of mastering at least somewhat the book of Colossians and why it's important. Okay, so first of all, what is Colossians? Well, Chase offered this to the children, and this is a reminder to you uh, that in the New Testament, of course, we have the Gospels and we have books like Revelation. But a good chunk of the New Testament is made up of what we call epistles. Epistles meaning just letters, right? And so Colossians, Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, these are letters that were written to churches, and they are named after the church that they were written to, right? Many of them, as Chase said today, are written uh, by the Apostle Paul, and that certainly is the case here with Colossians. It's important for you to remember and to think about a little bit, uh, when we're reading these epistles, when we're reading from Colossians, we are reading someone else's mail, right? This is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul to people that went to church in Colossa, and we have it now in our Bible as Scripture, but that certainly wasn't what Paul thought he was writing when he wrote it. Does that make sense? So Paul wrote this letter. It was passed along to the church in Colossa. What likely happened is that they stood up in worship and they read the letter out loud. Here's what Paul is telling us here at our church. Not unlike what we've done today. We take this letter, we read it out loud, and the church did that over many, many centuries, and it gained a lot of respect and attention, which led to it being included in the canon, which led to it being in our Bibles as we have them today. And so we're reading an ancient letter that was not Scripture in its original intent, but it became Scripture for the church across its history. And so we read, first thing there as we open up the letter today, you can see it there in your bulletin, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So this is written by Paul. This is how he opens the letter. And of course, we have many letters that are written by Paul. And then later in Colossians 4, 3, uh, Paul will mention that as he's writing this letter, uh, he's doing so in prison. This is the reason he's in prison. And he kind of mentions that at the end of the letter. So that's an important note for us to keep in mind as we read. So Paul, an apostle of God uh, by the will of God. Right? So Paul writes this letter with this really strong divine imperative. And you remember the story of the Apostle Paul. He, of course, was a Jewish leader. He uh, attacked the church violently, went after the early church. He had a dramatic conversion experience, was blinded by Jesus, came to know and follow and love Jesus, and then fully committed himself to the ministry of Jesus, spreading the good news of the gospel and starting those early churches. And so when Paul writes, he writes with great gusto and compassion and seriousness, right? I am Paul, an apostle of God by God's divine will, right? And so we sort of take those letters quite seriously. There's some other names that are going to come up in the letter that are important for you to know, kind of as a point of Bible study, a point of reference, and one we've already read this morning. The second name that you should be paying attention to is Epaphras, Epaphras, uh, which is just a shortened version of the same title, Epaphroditus, kind of like John and Jonathan, right? Epaphras and Epaphroditus. 
What appears to be the case is Epaphras is the local leader there in Colossa. We have him mentioned in 1.7 and 4.12. His name also comes up in Philemon and Philippians. Along with Epaphras is Tychicus, who's mentioned in Colossians 4.7, as well as Ephesians 6.21-22, and Onesimus, who comes up here at the end of the Colossians letter. When we take those names and characters, we kind of get a sense in which these, these people work together. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon. And we often treat those books of the Bible together because they seem to involve the same characters. And so Paul is sort of the leader writing to them in different times and different places, but they all seem to know each other and they're working together for the good of the gospel and for the good of the early church ministry. So what time period are we talking about? We believe that most of these letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, date to around 60 A.D., so just do a little math in your own head. Uh, Jesus' ministry is uh, at its peak there in 30, and of course he's put to death in 33. So we're some 27, 28, 29, 30 years later, where the early church is beginning to grow, and Paul is writing these letters to them, continuing to teach them and to minister to them. This means that these letters that we're reading are as early as the Gospels themselves, right? When we read the epistles in the New Testament, we're reading some of the earliest Christian literature. Mark and Matthew and Luke, they were written 50, 60, 70. And so when we're reading Paul's letters, we're reading very, very early Christian thought. Right? Paul does not have a Bible for reference. Right? He's not flipping back to the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to put together his thoughts. Right? Paul is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing down what he understands about Jesus and passing it along to those early Christians with no resources to speak of, which makes the letter sort of even more impressive. Again, we mentioned that Paul is likely in Rome, uh, a prison in Rome, uh, but some believe maybe Ephesus. All right, so let's talk about the location. The city that we're talking about in this case is Colossa. Uh, this is an older city that dates back to the 5th century, and we believe its population reached as high as 10,000, and it was a city of great uh, ethnic and religious diversity. So there were Jews living there, and then there were certainly Gentiles living there. There were Greeks, who we might also call pagans, right? So it's a fairly large city with a lot of different people, a lot of different traditions and religious influences represented. Uh, the city was destroyed by an earthquake in the 60s, and then later it was included in the Roman Empire. So in terms of its current sort of geographical study, we don't know a whole lot about it. We just know largely what's written in the historical documents. That last bullet point, though, is going to be really important for reading Colossians, right? That there are cults of worship throughout the Lycus Valley, including in the city of Colossa. When we say cults of worship, we just mean different opportunities to worship in different ways. So this could be worshiping Greek gods like Zeus and Apollos. This could be worshiping Roman authorities, leaders, figures, Caesar. Uh, this could be worshiping in the Jewish tradition or now worshiping in the Christian tradition. Right? So this was a veritable uh, fast food menu of worshiping opportunities in Colossa. Right? If you wanted to worship a god of food, a god of health, a god of pleasure, a god of nature, there was something for you to worship there. And that's really important uh, in Paul's writing and thinking about why it's... Uh, why the challenges are arising there in the church in Colossians. Here's a little map for you. So you can see on the lower right-hand side is Jerusalem and, Gal and Galilee. That's, of course, where Jesus' uh, ministry mostly took place and where Jesus uh, was put to death. And then Paul begins to go on his missionary journeys moving across the west, across Asia Minor, and eventually all the way uh, to Rome. And so we're looking at the city of Colossa, which is there in the center. And there's a river there called the Lycus River. And so you sometimes hear that region referred to as the Lycus Valley. Is that okay? 
Questions so far? I feel like I'm sort of teaching this morning. Any questions, comments, anybody? We good? All right, very good. All right, so some themes from the letter in Colossians. First of all, there's no real formal definition in terms of what Paul's concerned about, uh, but what appears to be the case is there's a little bit of a derogatory attitude toward Jesus uh, and continuing to be some worship of these other gods. And so Paul writes in the letter to the Colossians to convince them of the importance and the overarching work of Jesus Christ, both his ministry, his death, and resurrection. So in this letter, what you're going to hear is Paul essentially saying, Jesus is the be-all, end-all, right? And these other traditions that are around you, these other gods that are around you, perhaps some of these religious traditions that are in your past, it's time to put them away and to fully worship Jesus. So that'll be the, the theme from the rest of the text today. We're just looking at the very beginning and what uh, Paul sort of sets up there. So I'm going to move quickly through today's verses, and I want to get to a few points there at the end, and then I'm going to tee it up for Reverend Chase to knock it out of the park next week uh, with the Colossian hymn. Are you excited, Chase? Yes, very excited. All right, first thing we get in any of these letters, we get a little bit of a salutation. So Paul talks about himself. I'm an apostle. I'm writing on behalf of the will of God. He says he's writing to the saints and the faithful ones, and so this is a positive affirmation of the work in Colossians right away, right? I'm writing to the saints, those who are holy, those who are set apart, those who are doing faithful and good work, and I offer you grace and peace. And so we hear that a lot in Paul's letters. The next thing that he does, and you may have heard me as I was reading, is he enters into this long sort of stream of consciousness just celebrating how, how much he knows about the work of the church in Colossa, right? And it's a prayer of thanksgiving. He says, I've heard about you, all the good work you do there, and I'm giving thanks for how faithful you are and how you've committed yourself to Jesus. And I know that you've heard the gospel, and the gospel has been bearing fruit throughout the world. The world in this case means that map we just showed, right? A small part of the world. The gospel has been bearing fruit throughout the world, and it's bearing fruit there in your church. And so Paul just gushes praise. I'm so happy. I'm so thankful. I'm overjoyed. And I hear great things about Epaphras, which is essentially their local pastor. Epaphras is doing a great job. He's a wonderful pastor. We're so glad that he's there, a fellow servant of Jesus Christ. And so that sort of leads us to conclude that Paul doesn't necessarily know these people personally. Right? He's writing a letter to a church that he's not personally in touch with. He just has heard about them, and he's heard a lot of good things. Right? So that's verses 3 through 8. And then we sort of get to what I think is the meat of this opening section today. And so I'm going to invite you to keep these scriptures in front of you as we look at them, verses 9 through 12. Notice how the, the tone changes. Uh, Paul offers them this praise and this celebration. I give thanks for you. You're bearing fruit. And then in verse 9, he says this. For this reason... Since the day we heard it, so we've heard all these things about you, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him as you bear fruit in every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. So here in verse 9 and then in 10 and 11, Paul really sets forth why he's writing this letter, right? He says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, I'm writing on behalf of God. I've heard wonderful things about your church, you're faithful, you're working hard, Epaphras is doing a great job. Therefore, Paul says, the thing that I am praying for you is this, that you would grow in knowledge, that you would grow in wisdom, and that you would grow in understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. That is the reason Paul is writing this letter, and that is his hope for the church in Colossae. And so I want to think with you a little bit about those three words and why Paul uses them. Right? 
First of all, let's think about the word knowledge. The Greek word in this case is epignosis. Uh, That's the root word for our word epistemology, right? Which means how we know things, knowledge, what we know, right? And when we think about having knowledge, we typically think about a very sort of precise sort of uh, discernment or recognition, right? There's a definition for you. Recognition, full discernment, precise and correct knowledge. Knowing something specific and detailed, right? Knowing something specific and detailed is to have knowledge. Most of you have knowledge about your professional life, your professional work. As you become further and further trained and further and further acquainted with your professional world, you know more and more about the details that are involved therein. And you become an expert in the thing that you do, right? I would like to think that I have a lot of knowledge about ministry, about church, right? This is where I spend most of my time and energy. So I know a lot about the pastoral work and expectations. I know a lot about what I'm good at and what I'm not so good at. I know a lot about what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible. I know a lot about our United Methodist Church and all the things that are going on with it. Those are things that I have a lot of knowledge about because I've been trained and because that's how I spend a lot of my time. And you have a lot of knowledge about your particular fields, doctors, lawyers, bankers, teachers, all those things that you do, you know a whole lot about those specific things. And so Paul prays and he tells the church in Colossae what they need to do is to grow in their knowledge, to grow in their knowledge. That apparently they don't know enough details, enough specifics exactly about who Jesus is and what Jesus means for their life. So they need to go deeper. Knowledge means deep, a deep, specific understanding. The second thing he prays for is that they would have wisdom, right? Wisdom. Wisdom is the Greek word Sophia. That means a kind of broad intelligence on many different matters, right? So if knowledge is deep and specific, wisdom is sort of diverse and broad, right? So you may know a whole lot about one particular thing, the thing that you do, the thing that you're trained in, but to be wise is to know a whole lot of things, at least a little bit about a whole lot of things, And so Paul prays that they need to have knowledge, they need to have deep and precise knowledge about Jesus, but they also need to have wisdom about a lot of other things that are going on in the world, different religions, different traditions, different practices. And then the last phrase that he uses is understanding. The Greek word here is sunesis, and you can hear in that sunesis our word for synthesis, right? Sunesis, synthesis. So to have understanding is to bring those two things together. I've got a very specific knowledge about some things. I have wisdom about a lot of things. And to have understanding means that I can hold those things together. That I know that I know a whole lot about a few things, and I know that I know a little bit about a lot of things, and then there's probably a whole lot more things that I don't know anything about. And understanding is sort of holding that all together. I thought I would bring you this illustration this morning. It comes from uh, a psychology teaching called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you familiar with this at all? You've seen this before? Okay, real quick. So what the Dunning-Kruger effect says basically is that people who act like they know a lot actually know the least. Amen? Yeah? People who act like they know a lot actually know the least. And people who do know a lot tend to act like they don't necessarily know that much. Right? And so here's a little chart for you. On the left-hand side is confidence. Right? And on the bottom side, the, the, uh, the x-axis is actual knowledge or competence. Right? So at the beginning of your life, Think back to your teenage years, your early adult years. You think you know a whole lot, amen? And you're very, very confident that you know a whole lot, amen? But in reality, you're actually ignorant, right? And we call that, in some places, they call it the peak of stupidity, right? Uh, Because this is where you think you know a whole lot, but you actually know very little. And then sometime in early adulthood, 
this sort of awareness comes to be, and you get a little bit disappointed, and you go into this valley, right? Oh, no, I don't know near as much as what I thought. This job is a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Working at church is a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Vacation Bible school is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, right? And so after you fall into that gap, you begin to have some humility. And when you have humility, you allow yourself to be trained, right? And you allow yourself to learn and to grow. And this is where we actually develop expertise, right? Here's kind of a narrated version of the same, of the same graph, right? Our confidence is high, but our competence is low. Of course, I know everything. Oh, no, this is much harder than I thought. I'm never going to be understanding this. I'm starting to understand it a little bit. Was it easy? No. Is it complicated? Yes, right? Now, that graph could be transposed on any of your career fields and any of your expertise, right? It seems sort of easy from the outside, and you will hear people talk about your work as if though it's obvious and simple, but on the inside, you know it's actually quite complicated, and it takes a while to figure it out. I want to suggest to you that Paul is sort of imagining something similar with the Colossians. They are very early in their faith. They're very early in following Jesus. They've just got a little taste of what Jesus is and what Jesus means. The gospel is good news. Jesus wants to save you. And they're sort of at that high point. Isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? We've got it. We've got the gospel. And Paul says, yeah, you've got it, but, but there's, a, there's a few more details you need to straighten out. And so this letter is sort of an attempt to take them through that valley sort of breaking down what they understand and what they don't understand, and then celebrating what it means to actually follow Jesus. And so I'll close today with those few verses 9 through 11, and I want you to see some of those words that are highlighted. In these verses, Paul is setting them up for what's to come. He says, we're praying that you would grow in knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding, and that you would learn to lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, that you would bear fruit that you would grow in the knowledge of God, that you would be strong in the strength that comes from his power, that you would endure everything with patience. I think Paul's kind of describing that Dunning-Kruger slope there, right? We want you to grow in knowledge. We want you to grow in wisdom. We want you to grow in understanding. And it's probably going to be a little bit painful and uncomfortable to go through this process, and so we hope you do so with endurance and with strength and with patience. Paul is trying in Colossians to tell the church there that that Jesus is the most important story. That Jesus is the most important story. And that all the other stories that are at work in Colossae and all the other stories that are at work in their lives, they really need to, to be set under Jesus. And the way he's going to do that is sort of to teach them. Here's what you think you know about Jesus, but there's even more to learn. And I suspect that that same message is true for us today. There's a lot of us who know Jesus. We know Jesus has saved us. We've been in church a lot. We get Jesus. We get the good news. But we're still kind of at that high point. It's good. It's great. It's simple. It's obvious. But Paul is perhaps writing to us and saying, yeah, it is good and great, but, but let's go a little further. Let's grow in knowledge. Let's grow in wisdom. Let's grow in understanding so that we can lead lives that are worthy of the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the work of the church, particularly the early church, as we remember those early apostles and disciples without any of the resources that we know today, but who were seeking and growing and following you. God, we are surrounded by ample resources, our Bibles, our places of worship, resources for study and faith and growth. God, we pray that the same spirit that led those disciples then would lead us now, that you would shape and reshape us according to this good news, the gospel 
that it would bear fruit in our lives. This in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.